Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon sitting across this table. How's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. As always, we hope it's going fantastic for everyone else as well. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do like us here and like what we're doing, feel free to go to our podcast. And Jeff and I do ask if you want to give us a rating and review. Mm -hmm. We will be greatly grateful for it. So that's Apple Podcasts? That is Apple iTunes? Podcasts, yes, on mm-hmm. iTunes. And, um, you know, obviously we're trying to grow the podcast and have said before, a lot of people always say thanks for the podcast because this is free. And mm-hmm. if you want to thank us, that is a way that you can do it. Also, if you do want to follow uh, me on Twitter, mm-hmm. you can go to at Focused Compound yes. and that's where you'll find me. Jeff is no longer on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, my account's still on Twitter. You're on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your, your account's on Twitter, but you don't... No, you just, follow at Focus Compound. Yeah, you decide you're yeah. not going to use it anymore. So follow at Focus Compound. Jeff does send me some stuff too to tweet out yeah. Sometimes like his notes that uh, we mm-hmm. tweet out on a new spinoff and you could find um, those there. So today we're going to be talking about something interesting and you do initial interest posts on the website. Yes. Focus on yep. And it's amazing how many people have reached out to me and I know they've reached out to you too, where they say they almost value the posts you write up where you say why you're not going to invest into something right. instead of the ones where you talk about you think it's a good business. So yep. it's like the quality or certain businesses that you, you think is not um, you know a good business doesn't make a, a mm-hmm. good investment etc. So today I thought we'd spend some time talking about good versus bad. Okay, and I'm going to name off some different topics and sure. we could kind of give examples of it, dive a little bit deep, see where it takes us, and kind of go from there. Okay, so what determines good or bad for a whole host of different uh, exactly? Okay, yeah. So and I thought that'd be a lot of fun and maybe people could get uh, get some stuff out of it. So we're going to start actually with business. Okay, right. So. To you, what makes a good business and what makes a bad business? And we could sort of, I guess, go back and forth on it. Okay. So the number one thing that makes a good business is a high return on net tangible assets. Okay. Um, then I'd say that it's durable. So those returns on net tangible assets are going to continue into the future. So is this more like a Greenblatt? You know how we talked about like his return yeah. on capital measure? Right. So that's the magic formula. Yeah. Basically his return on uh, his magic formula uh, return on capital um, formula is very similar to how I would calculate return on net tangible assets. So, do you take EBIT for that, or net income, or what? It, cash so, flow. Uh, EBIT divided by yeah, you can do a cash flow measure, but one of the easiest ways to start is EBIT divided by um, the amount of capital invested in the business. And so, the key parts of that are really um, usually inventory, receivables, and property, plant, and equipment. And then you subtract out of that accounts payable and um, accrued expenses. Okay. So, and sometimes deferred revenue is a big part of that too. Got it. So high return on capital. Right. A high, a high enough return on capital at least. Um, and a, uh, so for instance, long-term return in the stock market may be 10%. So you would want the return on capital in the business to be at least the same as you could get in the stock market. So I'd say, you know, 10% or whatever. And then uh, durable, meaning that basically this business is going to continue to exist and produce decent returns on capital for a very long time as far as you can see in the future. And then the last one is um, the higher the return on capital, the more you want it to grow. 
So the ability to reinvest in the business. And those three are pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And then I would I would guess probably on the bad side, it's probably the exact opposite right. of that. So a bad business tends to have um, low returns on intangible assets over the entire cycle. Um, it ha- especially the lowest returns. So there are years where it's negative, it loses money, or it's very close to zero. Right. So very cyclical, probably. Um, also, it um, is not durable. So um, the returns won't last. And then um, finally, so if it has poor returns on capital, actually growing is bad. So a fast-growing business that isn't durable and that has poor returns on capital will be the worst kind of business. Mm -hmm. Um, But they tend not to last forever because something will happen that um, it wouldn't be – it can't uh, finance itself and stuff. And then you hear stories about that. So some of the, um, I don't know, popular stocks, venture capital type things that don't work out. Um, uh, would be in that list, right? Sure. So, you know, there's questions about their financing. So like uh, Tesla or WeWork or something around now. Companies that need cash infusions to pretty much stay They need solvent. cash, and if the yeah. returns aren't high enough, um, then the only way they can get cash is by borrowing. They, they can't finance through their retained earnings, yeah. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. And a lot of people sort of talk about, it's like compare uh, Berkshire 1.0 to like Assis Candies or right. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's pretty good. Cool. All right, so next Good management versus bad management. Oh, that's tough. Um, I mean, from a shareholder's perspective, what's important about management? Um, the number one thing is that they be candid with you, that you can understand what they're saying, and that um, the information they're giving you is useful, that you feel you can get out of that. Um, also, from a long-term shareholder's perspective, a focus on return on capital and a focus on moat, you know, creating shareholder value. Those are the most important ones. So when they, instead of focusing on like what revenue growth or like next quarter's earnings, the, the biggest thing would be if they know what the key to their business is, um, and if they really understand that, um, you could kind of tell, I would say probably by like reading the proxy, the annual, sure. kind of like the language of there it. There's some companies that are famous letters. for knowing that. Um, I think Southwest airlines management is famous for knowing that where they, you know, an idea would be brought up and they would say, well, how does that help us make this the lowest cost flight? Yeah. And if it doesn't, then it's not part of what we do. So they understood that that was really, uh, anything that, that lowered their, their cost per seat mile basically was the key to their business. And I think it was probably like three years ago. Now I was reading the, the letter to shareholders of Strayer okay. education or mm-hmm. whatever that that company was their public company. And, and when I was reading the letter to the shareholders, I was like, wow, this guy sounds a lot like Warren Buffett. And then when I was learning mm-hmm. a lo- more about the chairman, he actually used to work for Berkshire oh, or, okay. or in some regard yeah. he had a connection to Warren. And I was like, oh, okay. So that, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, yeah. you could kind of pick up on the lingo. We were talking about like intrinsic value. Right. And- were there other companies you'll read about? Um, I wrote up uh, GE a little bit. I did an initial interest post on them. And GE, it's like, it's not clear if their management understands what free cash flow is and whether it matters, you know? And things like that. Um, so, the, it, I mean, serious questions like I don't know if they can measure the free cash flow of some of their business units or yeah. if they were doing it, you know. Um, so that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I actually uh, wrote up a company that's a uh, uh, we'll have when this goes out probably ever written up a company, but the notes went out on it. And um, it was a part of Honeywell. It still is a part of Honeywell. And Honeywell um, managed that business uh, where they, they send all the cash to Honeywell corporate uh, headquarters each day. So they don't have good free cash flow information on those. They might have it, but we don't have it. Just because it's timely and no one's probably asked you. Yeah. What, what about if the CEO of your business was on a podcast <laughs> consuming cannabis live <laughs> well see that i think that's a very interesting question i yeah. have a different feeling about that 
um, than some people do. Okay, so you could say yours, and I'll say what mine is. Okay, mine is that he, uh, the person that we're talking about here, um, may have to do more of those sorts of things than a normal CEO would. I think a normal CEO would not function well as the head of that company because I think what some of the things they're doing, like the fact that they need to have their, I've said for a long time they need to have access to capital. Yeah. So they have to keep up the. We're talking Tesla folks. Yeah. You all know it. They have to keep up the stock price and they have to keep people interested in it um, uh, regardless of what's happening with the business to be able to keep access in capital markets for a long time. And so you have to do, you have to do this weird PR stuff. <laughs> you have to somehow create buzz about the company. Yeah. And sometimes that means creating negative things if it keeps the company in the news all the time. Yeah. So it's a very weird situation. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not a – it's almost not like a normal company that way. Did you that listen to the podcast? No, I didn't. It, it was actually a very good like, discussion. Good podcast, I mean, the podcast yeah. was actually great. Mm-hmm. My opinion on it is – I mean, I like I, – I mean, I think people should want to see – elon and tesla succeed like right. really okay, okay obviously mm-hmm. this, we don't invest in tesla or anything it's All funny right. i guess following the company on twitter and everything mm-hmm. with elon but there was just a lot of obvious downside that could have come from it instead mm-hmm. of like upside and being i guess fiduciaries of other people's capital right i'm not really for that mm-hmm. um when there was just clearly a ton of downside that could have gone from that but i mean it was whatever you know yeah and uh we've talked in some of the write-ups that we did at some of the focus on focus commenting there's um singular diligence uh, write-ups on some companies. And in one, we mentioned how there was an excellent CEO as far as how he ran his company, but he borrowed heavily on margin to own stock in his own company. And there have been some other examples of this of CEOs. Lifetime Fitness? Yeah, it was Lifetime Fitness. Yeah, it's now private. Um, But that's not the only example of a company that did that sort of of the CEO borrowing on margin um, to own his own company's stock like that. Um, But, you know, uh, it does bring a question as to whether that um, that kind of risk taking in your personal finances um, reflects something about how you would run the company. Although the company was run completely the opposite way, it, sure. it wasn't mortgaged anywhere near as uh, how much you'd normally mortgage that kind of real estate and things like that. Um, th- but the thing you don't want to see, the biggest one, is there was a company, I don't think I want to say the name of the company, but um, it's a major company and it had promised, the, the CEO there had promised um, analysts basically that um, a certain amount of their revenue would be digital by such and such a day. Okay. So by this quarter, we'll hit this number of however many hundreds of millions of dollars in digital revenue. Because uh, some people were concerned it was sort of a legacy business that was going to decline, right? And so um, he put that out, and it didn't look like they were going to hit that target. But he kept saying, no, we're going to hit it, right? And then you find out later that there's an investigation into things lower in the company in that part of the business about whether they had um, – Improperly booked some things and stuff, let's say. Uh-oh. Uh, so, but what I'm saying is, if you say we're going to hit a number no matter what, if top management says that, then the people in that business unit uh, who report to him... Creates right, like pressure. ...think that we're going to hit that no yeah, matter what. Sure. And the people below him think that. And at each level down, I don't know exactly what happened here, but at each level down, all they have to say is, no, we're going to hit that as of <laughs> you know, next quarter no matter what. The number is you know, 400 million or whatever. That's the number for next quarter. Well, at some point someone will make that number. They'll make it happen. And it may be that no one ever told them from the top down that you have to make that the way to make this number is through fraud. Right. But that's in fact what you might have happening. And that's what can happen with, um, with the kind of quarterly reporting that we have and and with guidance, you know, that is the issue with guidance is that sometimes companies uh, do that. And then they, uh, the, the Chinese business units of American companies did it a lot. 
And I don't think that they intended to do that. I honestly think that the American um, boards of those companies and the CEOs intended to tell them you need to hit these numbers, but did not mean for it to be achieved the way that it was, right? But yeah. that's what they heard, is that we're going to hit those numbers, yeah. and they hit those numbers, right? Sure. Um, and so I think that that's a good example of what management can be. A, a big problem is, uh, the biggest problem I see is with like unrealistic guidance, unrealistic management. So lack of candor and sort of unrealistic goals. Yeah, those are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. And then, so you think good good management is candid yeah and knows what the essential competitive advantage is or w- does that scare you if you see that the ceo is is i guess taking out like his or using his stock as collateral yeah yeah it did worry me in that case yeah it does it's interesting because you hear a lot of people especially fund managers where they talk about oh the hedge fund manager should have 99 percent of his net worth invested in his fund and i oh, I, yeah. I understand that argument but there's another investor who I was just saying it was Bill Ackman. He mm-hmm. said that he doesn't think you should have ninety nine percent of your assets invested in the fund, right. but you should have you should at least be like the biggest investor in your fund. And his whole rationale mm-hmm. behind that is so you could act, I guess, um, you know, clearly under pressure and not act irrationally in that regard. Mm-hmm. Which I, I also can see that argument as well. Yeah, I'm fine with ninety nine percent of your of um, a CEO's wealth being in in the company. Yeah, I think that's fine and that's great. Um, what concerns me about um, barring a margin and things like that is that's an issue with the stock price. Um, and in that case, that I, they experienced that, where the stock price dropped for reasons that had nothing to do with, really, the, actual with the business. Company. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The company held up fine versus its peers. It actually held up great through the um, the uh, Great Recession and everything. It, it did really well compared to other fitness companies. But, um, it, you know, then it, it does worry about, like, the company's borrowing for other things. Um, if they might borrow short and um, uh, risk things about being having access to capital and all that because management is willing to do that. Um, yeah, it's worrying to see that uh, someone who has a big stake in their own company would risk um, borrowing on margin sure. to own more yeah. of it. You know? yeah. So this is sort of along, along the same line. So good incentives versus bad incentives when it comes to management? Uh, good incentives are long-term. Uh, there's something that the company – that the person can control that's one of the biggest ones that i don't like about uh, incentives that i see at most companies is that people way down in the organization are given incentives that are tied to the overall corporate performance which makes no sense um if we're trying to let's say we're putting out a movie or something and we're trying to reward the people in our movie studio um the people who were involved in marketing it should be rewarded on the basis of how well it was marketed and not the quality of the movie. They yeah. have nothing to do with how bad the movie was. Sure. So they should be rewarded really well if it outperforms movies of similarly poor quality. And they really should be. They should be paid more because of that. Because their job is marketing. It's it's not the quality of the movie. Whereas someone else who greenlit the movie or something should not be rewarded for that if that's the decision that, that didn't do well. So like, say, an insurance company. Um, it's fine for them to own a lot of stock in the company, but the under people who are involved in underwriting should only be... Um, rewarded based on the performance of that, and and the people who are involved in investment should be rewarded only performance of investment. You know, at Geico, they have a lot of people who are involved in underwriting, and those people should not be penalized if Geico's investment performance is poor. Nor should they be rewarded because they have a great investor investing the float. 
it shouldn't, you know. So yeah, sure. that's where I differ a little bit from other people in that one part because I think a lot of people think the overall firm, just the overall that yeah, you company on the basis yeah. of the overall company. And I would disagree with that. Like Berkshire's a good example. It doesn't make sense to um, compensate people who work for Warren Buffett running the different companies on the basis of how Berkshire as a whole does mm-hmm. because they make up five percent or something their company of the entire performance of Berkshire. So it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, long term uh, is the best and equity. Um, the, the best is equity. Um, not stock options that they have, but some form of equity grant over a long period of time would be good. Yeah, I would agree. Good accounting versus bad accounting. Um, for me, good accounting is something that re- properly records everything. I think of accounting as being something about recording things, not interpreting things. Uh, I can do my own interpreting of the information. So recording it and um, providing it in as granular a way as possible and providing all the detail that you need for it. So bad accounting obscures that. And um, I've mentioned before that I think the biggest tech companies in the U.S. have very bad accounting. It's very hard to figure out what's going on inside. Like, like Facebook and Google? Face- and, yeah. They're the two worst, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Apple's pretty bad, too. Yeah, because yeah. they don't really break it down. No, they don't. They don't want you to know. So They're like Netflix with their ratings or something. They don't want people to know um, how many people are watching their show because they don't want to have to you know, pay actors sure. a lot of money if they know that they're on a hit show. Yeah. It's like a yeah. good 10 K like Berkshire, how they break down pretty much everything. Yeah. Berkshire's pretty good that way. Um, now Berkshire's a really complicated company, so it's hard to understand that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say, um, I'm trying to think of one that was really good recently, but, um, it, yeah, anything that breaks down details about the, it gives you the most, we talked about NACO before. I'm pretty NACO's sure. How excellent. You, yeah. NACO's how you excellent. said it was great. Yeah. 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 yeah no, NACO's was, was amazing. Yeah. Good research versus bad research? Hmm. Um, I think good research is driven by uh, understanding the few key questions that will matter to your investment. And um, bad research is mostly focused on sort of short-term and macro things. The thing, the things that are most important for research are really understanding the things that are long-term going to drive the performance of this specific business. And the things that aren't so important are um, short-term predictions about macro things, things that will only indirectly affect this business. So like we just mentioned, NACO, a bad researcher would be trying to figure out information about expected coal consumption in the U.S. in the next year. But good research would be how much um, uh, power do I expect North Dakota to get from wind because North Dakota is just wind and and, um, and coal, uh, particularly the mines that, that NACO has are the biggest um, contributor there. So really it's in, in that area. So you narrow it down to that specific sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, that's good research is, is that. The bad research that I see a lot of is uh, more short-term and definitely more macro. It's like, okay, so this is a oil company. Mm-hmm. So let me talk about oil in general. And that's, that's less useful than, you know, the particulars of this company and what their situation is what about when people take like last quarter's earnings on a like uh like a trailing 12 months basis and say oh well the stock is trading here and every other stock in the industry is trading at 15 times earnings so this stock should trade at 15 times earnings um well that's not really research yeah so it's not good or bad research i see so many people like that yeah that do that i mean it could be fine if there's nothing in particular to know about the company yeah but if you know more specifics about the company um, and what they're likely to earn. Um, the other thing is just from the perspective of like how 
to value a company in a way that the market might not be. What's more useful usually is like in three to five years, what do I think their sales will be? What do I think margins are normally? That's what we always talk about. Yeah, and that's usually more useful um, because just knowing what they're earning now usually is already priced into the market, but knowing more like um, what they'd be earning at a different point in the cycle might be more useful. Like I talk all the time about banks. That's a good example because the Fed funds rate was at very close to 0% not that long ago. And people would use PE ratios on banks and things. That just doesn't make sense. You want to look ahead and say, okay, what will rates be in three to five years? And what will the net interest margins be then, not now? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just an issue of like um, research or whatever. It's just what's useful is knowing things that the market doesn't know. And the market's usually very, very focused on what's happening right now, on numbers you can report now. You need to be more interested in numbers you can't report um, so things that can't be reported as earnings right now and the things somewhere down in the future. Yeah. Good spinoffs versus bad spinoffs. And the reason I bring this up mm-hmm. is because last week when we were talking about Joel Greenblatt, how we were talking about some of the spinoffs that he invested in or, you know, companies that probably like Warren Buffett would never invest yeah. in. And you would say, well, Warren Buffett probably wouldn't invest in um, a lot of companies he's investing in now back when he first started out, which is true, true. because yeah. obviously different capital, whatever. Mm-hmm. But good spinoffs versus bad spinoffs. Um, if you had to boil it down. Right. So bad spinoffs, I guess, are easier. Uh, bad spinoffs are companies that have um, very little free cash flow of their own. Mm-hmm. So they have very little cash flow and they have a lot of obligations. Does it bother you when you see parting gifts? For example, like if, if the spinoff will yeah. give the parent a ton of cash beforehand right. or, yeah. or take on debt to do that? Yeah, I just didn't know it's on a company that that's the case with Honeywell. So Honeywell's spinning off, uh, planning to spin off two different spinoffs. And one of the spinoffs that it'll be doing is um, involved in their like uh, home environmental control, security controls, things like that. So the thermostats and, and um, security uh, alarm controls and things like that. So um, that business will be getting, uh, will be paying Honeywell about $1.23 billion. It's kind of like cars.com. They did right. similar to that, mm-hmm. to techno or whatever. Yeah. yeah, but in addition to that, they'll also be assuming... There's a cap on it, but they'll also be assuming the environmental liabilities for a bunch of sites. And um, Honeywell uh, has a ton of environmental liabilities there. So it's likely that at least for some amount of time, they'll also uh, be paying Honeywell $140 million a year after the spinoff each year because that's the, what the cap is. Um, but so you take that amount, the actual environmental liabilities that they spun off, and that on top of the debt gives you a lot. So uh, we're talking four or five times EBITDA probably of that unit. Well, yeah. So, um, but is that bad? Not necessarily. I mean, if they can, uh, that could be a good spinoff if they have reliable free cash flow underneath mm-hmm. that. And it's a very, it, it's a very old business and a very, um, good business. And Honeywell has long relationships with all of the key, um, you know, with ADT and with uh, carrier and with, uh, companies like that. So they, all the companies that, that put things into your house, and uh, they probably have the best position in, in that kind of stuff made for residential stuff in the U.S. So, so from there, so generate free cash flow. Yeah, um, has some sort of dur- durable business. You were just referencing yeah. it with ADT um, incentives. We talked about incentives early mm-hmm. on in the podcast, and we we're actually talking about KLXC in the last podcast. Yeah, so right? KLXC is a good example of good incentives. Honeywell have very little in the way of incentives. Um, they have a pretty high, their CEO of the new business unit and the CFO will have a pretty high base salary. Um, they will have a requirement to own like. Uh, I don't know, four years or five years of, of salary um, in the uh, in this in stock units, but uh, they'll be granted them and, and they'll vest pretty quickly. So they'll vest within three or four years. Um, so that's pretty fast. 
So uh, where KLXE, um, they'll be just taking the compensation in the form of uh, increased ownership in the company. I mean, mm-hmm. that's always the best thing to see. Um, I remember once I was writing something up about um, Copart, and they uh, were going to have a bunch of free cash flow that I didn't know what they were going to do with it. And I said, I think they're going to buy back a lot of stock. And someone said, you know, so why do you think they're going to buy back a lot of stock? And I said, because the um, top two people in the organization – uh, decided, uh, I mean, the board decided, but it was, yeah. I'm sure, at their instigation, um, that they would, instead of taking salaries like they had before and a mix of other things, they would basically take like a dollar or whatever. I was going to say, wasn't like a dollar a year yeah. or something? Yeah. And be granted um, stock options for, for a long period of time. It's like five years or something, the options. So, uh, I mean, until it was like five years or something until they would get the next meeting for what their pay would then be, right? So um, that you don't get much more money from having a dividend if you do that. You don't get that much more money if you acquire things and stuff. What do you get it from? The easiest thing to do is buy back stock. stock, Yeah, Yeah. sure. And so that's what they did. So I mean, following it, following the incentive, incentive, yeah. Yeah. No, but it's a really good incentive because it's not even an incentive that was forced on them by someone else. It's them saying, "Yeah, that's something." Let me cut the pie. I believe in the company. Yeah, yeah. I believe in the long term. Right, but the business. But take KLXE, okay? Yeah. So KLXE, the top people in that um, organization, they were the top people at the top person, let's say, at KLXI. Yep. Could have retired or whatever. Could have sold to Boeing or someone else the entire company. Done a deal where they sold off everything, including the including the uh, uh, energy services business, um, which is a small part. I don't know, fifteen percent or something of the total yeah. value of the company. Mm-hmm. But instead, said, "Let me go with the spinoff, and let me take all my compensation in the form of equity." And one thing, and to sort of expand on that, mm-hmm. last week you were talking about when a company says we're going to spin off this division, right? It's them saying. It's almost like they're putting their ego aside in a way. Yeah. And the reason is because when you were saying last time how like a CEO of the parent company, which typically is the bigger company, mm-hmm. right? How is their bonuses derived? It's probably off like the revenue or net income right. of a bigger pool of capital. Yeah, you get a consultant right? to come in. And so it's almost like your peer group is. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's almost like you're going to probably take, I don't want to say a pay cut, but probably a pay cut in a way because if you're, CEO, cut. Yeah, yeah. if mm-hmm. you're if you're the CEO of this new smaller company, it's a smaller revenue base or a smaller yeah. earnings base or whatever. Yeah. And and when you are the one who do, when management is the one who says this is how I want it to be this is how I want to be judged on and those sorts of things you know when you think that they're really the ones setting the compensation plan right which yeah. essentially they are um, then that that's interesting a lot of times you see compensation plans which to be honest people I talk to people about them and they say like well I like this thing or that thing about it but it looks like a consultant talked to the board about it and they came up with something which is similar to other companies of the same size so that's not that interesting but when you see something that looks like a CEO may have said, no, 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 I want to be paid all in stock, That's right? Huge. And I don't want to be yeah. paid. And I don't want to meet again for five years to decide what my pay will be and stuff. Yeah. That's telling you that they think I can get pretty rich over the next five it's years. like, stop overthinking it. Yeah. What, what is that telling you? Yeah. Now, they could be delusional. They could be overly optimistic. There are some CEOs who are like that. They're always too optimistic and stuff like that. You have the personalities involved with them. Sure. Like I was talking about candor and things like that. Well, if uh, I followed a company, uh, DreamWorks Animation. And I thought the CEO there was very good. It was Jeffrey Katzenberg, but an eternally optimistic person. So we'll put the best spin on everything, you know, but that's just the way you are in that kind of business, you know, yeah, sure. and that's what he was. So I just mean, I think there was um, a, a good person running and stuff, but you have to understand the, the level of optimism there where I've had other, I've listened to the calls of some other companies where they're almost some, like I can think of a bank where they're almost essentially pessimistic <laughs> and everything's terrible yeah. and they come and they make more money than expected and stuff all the time. Which would but you they, rather? Um, Under promise over deliver? 
obviously i would say well so. i mean as an investor sure you would rather that they're very pessimistic and stuff with, with that but in terms of what it actually takes to run the business sometimes i mean when i'm talking about like a movie studio getting all the people excited about some idea yeah you have to be kind of an optimist and telling them a great story about something that as of yet is nothing because you're getting these people on board you're trying to convince people to come together and do this thing for you so yeah i think sometimes there are different skills between what it takes to run the company and what it takes to uh, explain it to investors yeah yeah that's great good micro caps versus bad micro caps uh we talked before about this i think one thing liquidity is good micro caps have uh, low liquidity yeah. yeah i don't even think of micro caps so much as the one group uh, i think of illiquid stocks as being different from liquid stocks i don't necessarily think of small uh market caps as being um all in the same group yeah uh, so that's one of the biggest ones the other things are you know basically just that they're good business the same as other businesses yeah um, we talked a little bit about that. Really good microcaps sometimes have this problem, which is that they're microcaps because the industry that they're in can't really grow to be that big. Like the addressable market isn't that big, right? So, you know, you have that happen sometimes. Whereas with really big companies, part of it is not just that they're a great company or something, but we mentioned Google and Facebook. That's just that the addressable market is huge. So if you're the leader in that, you have a giant market gap. But if you're the leader in plenty of other businesses, you have a very small market cap because Facebook and Google aren't really very diversified doing a lot of different things. They have a huge amount of their money come from a very small uh, number of activities that they perform. But those things just happen to be a global yeah. um, market yeah. of t- taking up. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Good investing versus bad investing. Um. That I, that's a very hard question to answer overall. What do you think? You want to pass on that? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a very broad question. Yeah. Uh, good investing versus bad investing. Um, no, yeah, I, I do. I think that's just too broad a question to answer. Good human behavior versus bad human behavior. <laughs> that's a broader question. <laughs> <to get laughs> when it, when it comes to investing, though. Oh. So I would say, like, not checking stock prices well, every I, single I day. I just wrote a memo. Cocaine brain was the name of the memo. There you go. And that was a good um, topic, by the way, or a good, uh, that was good. I like the, the title of that. Yeah. Well, the title was stolen <laughs> you know, from the checklist manifesto I mentioned it, in there. You sent it to me and I was half asleep and I yeah. look at that and I looked at it and I was like, cocaine brain. I was like, wait, did he? Oh, okay. We're talking about guys here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's mentioned in the checklist manifesto. Um, and, uh, so, so <clears throat> cocaine brain is, is an example of like seeing, um, getting really excited about a stock idea and i said particularly to me i think where i see it happen to people is a big payoff quickly uh when people talk about a big payoff that's going to take a long time to happen um i don't think this happens to them but uh when it's something that they think they're going to get a quick uh, doubling of their money or something right and so they see that a lot and that's usually from very cheap stocks that they get excited by that so i think in terms of behavior for Investing, yeah, I don't think that checking your stocks all the time is a great idea, but I've read about plenty of investors who do it all the time and are successful, that they're aware of it all the time. I don't think there's any point to it, um, checking your stocks all the time. And I would. How often do you check the stocks? Uh, I often, I would say I don't usually know during the day what the stock yeah. price is. You get a text from me. Hey, you <laughs> see what they're doing? What <laughs> um, no, I would say that's true. I don't normally know what yeah. the stock price is uh, during the day. So you would say it's probably not checking the stock prices as much or you just doesn't matter or what but do you think it's also like being like um familiar with certain cognitive biases like anchoring and confirmation bias and all that other stuff yeah i think that those things matter um i think 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I th- but you know, there's all sorts of people who do the opposite of what I'm saying. So I don't know. I mean, they, they may be over, over overcome it, and in some cases, there may be advantages that they find from it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people find that checking stock prices all the time is helpful because they plan to do a lot of trading of it. What I find is not helpful is you want to focus on the things that you are going that are going to have a big impact to your investing results. So if you're a trader who's going to be in and out of the stock a lot in smaller increments, buying 5% of the position you eventually want and then selling that and then buying back 10 and then, you know, and, and changing the size of your position constantly, trading around the position or whatever, then yeah, I guess you should be paying attention to the stock all the time. Mm-hmm. To me, investing in it over a longer time where I'm thinking we'll own it from anywhere from, I don't know, one to five years or something, it doesn't make sense to look at it. Basically, it's, it's deciding... Uh, you know, that you want to buy it in the first place. But I also don't really pay attention to much about how big to size the positions. I don't really pay that much attention to things like that because I found... A lot it, of people do, too. And a lot of people spend yeah. a lot of time with that. And I found it makes more sense to focus on just having the best list of new stocks, yeah. you know, to look at buying. Yeah. A lot of people have been surprised by that. I mean, like, yeah. that um, when you make the decision, it's just buy it all at once and kind of, you know... Yeah. And, and equally weight it. Sure. Portfolio. I mean, we do illiquid stocks and stuff, so in terms of, like... We don't buy it at any price, so it does sometimes take – it's taken a very long time sometimes to get our position. Sure. But the decision to buy it and how much to buy, yes. We know how much we want to buy, and we've made the decision to buy it. Now we don't go out in the market and bid enough that we'll necessarily get it all, mm-hmm. right? But, yeah, absolutely. We we definitely have made the decision. Um, and that is uh, – yeah, no, and that's completely different than what a lot of people do. But over time I came to that just because I didn't find that it was very helpful to size them at, at – um, differently and to worry a lot about that. And a lot of people go in slowly buying into a stock, which I don't. So I think that's, you know. But on the other hand, I should say, uh, and I think I said this in a pr- previous podcast, I think, um, people talk about like all the things that's important to do and Warren Buffett's temperament and everything. And then when they talk about trading a stock, about how they buy it, about the sizing of the stock and about how they buy it over time and gradually get yeah, there's to know one in, stuff. I mean, someone that we know that he'll buy like 2% for, or like some people, they have like a set standard or mm-hmm. rules. They're like, oh, first I'll make it a 2% position. Right. Then in a couple quarters, I'll make it a 4%. Yeah. And then, yeah. Which is fine. But it's interesting because they often talk about Warren Buffett and stuff and he doesn't do that at all. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like he starts buying Apple and he's really buying Apple. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I think that's interesting. I just, I don't know why it is that Buffett, uh, but the people who, who, um, pay a lot of attention to Buffett and like to emulate him in a lot of ways, do something that's really different in terms of how they buy into their positions and how they sell out of them compared to how Buffett does it, which mm-hmm. is fine. I'm not saying that you have no, to yeah. do it that way either, but I'm saying that they seem to have a really strong opinion about why they should be doing it differently. You know, and I don't know, but I mean, looking at the past record of it, I'd say it's very, uh, my own past record with it, I'd say it's very mixed. I think people tend to remember that they bought things that they could have gotten cheaper later. Sure. Yeah. And they don't remember as much that um, they bought something that then went up and that they might never have gotten into, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to forget those sorts of things too. So I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I, people seem to be successful doing both of them. I've read plenty of books where people, um, did more of that sort of thing of sizing them differently and doing all that. Although when I kind of do the math in my head about how much of a difference that really could have made to them, I'm not sure. But if it makes them feel better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if it made them stay in a good stock when they otherwise wouldn't have or something, that would be good. A lot of people say they need to own a little bit of the stock to really follow it. I've heard that. I don't so understand that statement. Like sometimes yeah. people will be like, oh, I'll just buy like 1% of it so then I'll follow it. Right. And a lot of people do that. And they and it's important to them. So I think that's great if, if they're doing that. But why though? Because it just, they follow the company more? I mean, they'll, 
those people may be following a lot of stocks, looking in a in a very superficial way in a ton of stocks. I've heard a lot of people say that though, I've and heard I, so I never many people say yeah, it, I and I, that. it's not what I do because I really focus in on stock, researching it for a while, and it's like all of my focus is looking at this stock. And I think, it, but it's true for a lot of people that they don't really follow a stock closely until then. But I just don't have that. Like I said about DreamWorks and stuff, um, which is a stock I should have bought but did not. But I did a, plenty of research on that and knew the stock uh, probably better than a lot of people who own the stock, right? And I followed it closely. I listened to all the earnings calls that it had for a long time, and I saw the movies, and I uh, did some scuttlebutt things and stuff. But I never owned the stock. So, but Why it didn't you end up buying it? What? Why didn't you end up buying it? Uh, here's why I didn't end up buying it. So I asked myself and uh, my partner on writing some due diligence, uh, we asked ourselves, what if Jeffrey Katzenberg was hit by a bus tomorrow? And we said, we would not want to be in the stock, right? Mm-hmm. Honestly. We said, this is basically a stock where uh, we're comfortable with it because of who's running it. And not because he's a genius or something, but because I'm not that comfortable with owning a movie studio where I don't know who's going to be in charge of it because the amount of damage you can do with a few decisions, greenlighting a few $150 million movies on a company that only has a market cap that's equal to you know, three or four uh, production budgets for these movies, you have three or four flops in a row and you've destroyed most of the value in the company, right? It's that sort of thing. You're making decisions about particular movies that are literally – They'd be betting 15, 20% of the company on a single movie, right? Yeah. You know? It's like managing a, a portfolio of stocks, like right. concentration. Yeah. 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 And so I agreed with his, and we had tons of information about it and decades of, of knowledge about it, about his overall way of thinking about entertainment, about story, about things like that. And there have been some heads of movie studios and some producers and things that we just don't agree with them yeah. about how they think about that. And it would be like they were throwing darts. You know, it would be, okay, well, this voice, this you know, person we're going to have do this movie is really big celebrity. So I'm sure it'll be a big hit, you know? Yeah. Um, and we knew he wouldn't do that basically. Um, so we were comfortable with him in charge, but we weren't comfortable. Uh, I don't remember who it was. It might've been Peter Lynch who said, um, that you should own a business that, uh, an idiot could run because eventually one will. Um, and I, think I that was Buffett. That was Buffett. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't, uh, I don't think that a movie studio is something that you want an idiot running. Well, it's kind of like, think about it this way, right? If you were to invest in a hedge fund manager right. or uh, some sort of company because of the allocator of the capital, mm-hmm. right? And he were to get hit by a bus, retire, die, yeah. whatever it is, that would probably re, you know make you rethink your decision for yeah. sure. But yeah. what's interesting about that is I did buy Berkshire Hathaway in early 2009, and I would have been okay with it if Buffett uh, was no longer at the company after I bought it. Because of how cheap it was, because of how the business units basically run themselves with the right managers mm-hmm. in charge of each sure. one and all that sort of stuff. You know, they had the right person doing the insurance stuff. I would have been fine with that. Um, he was not making bets every day that were hugely going to change the fortunes yeah. of the company anymore. Right. Sure. He was over time accumulating all those things, but it really wasn't just that. Now I would have maybe felt differently if it was the early seventies, right? Because Buffett in the early seventies, it was a lot of just his common stock portfolio and a few names, you know? And so it was all about him. And, and Munger to some extent. So, um, yeah, but that's why I didn't buy um, DreamWorks. But I looked at it really closely, and there's tons of stocks that I've looked at and that I've talked about um, because I looked at them closely and decided not to buy them. The most the most common reason why I know a lot about a company and talk about it on this podcast, and yet people, a lot of times people say to me, oh, you own this stock. They assume that I owned a stock because I've talked about it a lot and, and know some stuff about it. And I didn't, and the biggest reason is usually price, that it never was at a price that I wanted. So, like, for 
almost 20 years I've talked about McCormick, which is a company that I love. Yeah. And I've never owned because I feel it's been expensive for 20 years. Yeah. It's had great performance for those 20 years, so I was obviously wrong. But, yeah. You know, so... So you're unpredictable. No, I'm just saying you can follow a company without owning some percentage of it, I think. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. You know? I was just saying, I was thinking about, we talk about stocks on here all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And like past, you know, uh, winners or whatever, yeah. or we may be talking, like we've talked a lot about spinoffs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I wonder how many people think we're going to buy it when we're really not going to. We're just actually talking about the business itself. Yeah. So a lot of time, I think that's a big reason. So, and they might be right to think that, that if I really like a business, why not buy it? Yeah. You know, that, how, you know, how expensive can the price be that I wouldn't want to buy it? Um, but then there's also ones where I look at the stock and I think it's really interesting. And I, I think that there's still, uh, certain things about the risk of it or something. You yeah. Know? But there's also stocks that I, you know, I don't know. There are stocks that I follow too. And that I think, have certain problems. I mentioned a stock before. I didn't say what stock it was, but I wouldn't own it while the CEO was there uh, because that was the CEO who I think encouraged some uh, bad decision making uh, further down the organization right yeah um and i just and i thought wasn't candid and stuff so i have you know in my head to consider that company when that ceo isn't there and that's not unusual that's happened before um one i will say uh is i looked at company majestic wine in the uk looked at it very closely and stuff was going to write about it and didn't end up doing it because a company called naked wines kind of merged into them and the ceo of naked wines took them over and a lot of people like the ceo of naked wines uh, I don't want to say I don't like the CEO of Naked <laughs> but Wines. But you don't like him? <laughs> uh, but that's not the kind of direction I want the company going in. Yeah, uh-huh. He's very entrepreneurial, very um, someone who starts up businesses, sort of a serial entrepreneur. And um, that wasn't what I was interested in. I was interested in the wine business as a um, sort of a – it was a – I don't know. The closest thing to like a Costco of wines is what it was. It was, you know, very small scale for that, but it was, um, had large, uh, fairly large volumes per customer that it had. Okay. And it was an, uh, brick and mortar retail type thing. And, uh, I, I liked it fine and would was interested in it. And then, um, when they did that, uh, I'm not interested in it, but you know, we don't know that CEO will be there forever. Something could happen. He could be gone again. And maybe the, that part of the business will again become important. And so you keep following that company. I've never owned that stock. So, I mean, and we've talked about singular diligence, right? So on the website, there's, I've said before, I don't know, maybe 25 reports, something like yeah. that, 20 some reports. I definitely did not buy more than four of those stocks. So I'm sure that I'm sure over 80% of those are cases where I wrote 10,000 plus words about yeah. it and didn't buy the stock. Uh-huh. I feel that I can follow those stocks even though I don't own any part of the business. Now, maybe it's that people who don't own any part of it also aren't putting in writing a report about it. Sure. So maybe you just could not write, uh, not own 1% of the company if you instead just wrote a report about it for yourself. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that's, I think it makes sense. And the funny part is too, is when you were talking about, so you wrote 25 or whatever it is mm-hmm. reports and the ones that you did buy were the ones that you guys actually said, like you like the most, this company has the biggest moat yeah, that we a couple studied. Of them, yeah. 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 But two did not do well. I mean, eventually it did. Okay. But yeah, the two, um, absolutely. The ones you're talking about are, uh, Babcock and Wilcox pre spinoff and frost. Yeah. Uh, BWX Technologies, we said, had the widest mode of any stock I've ever seen. And that's probably true to this day. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Frost, the bank, uh, I thought was um, the best stock that, that we found there. Yeah. And obviously we don't own them for the managed accounts, right. but do you still follow them? Yes. And you don't own 1% of them? No. <laughs> I still follow them. Oh, so yeah. there you go. Yeah. What do you think? About- I, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean I, I've never bought 1% just to follow... A company. I don't understand why people do that. I said that before. I don't. I don't mm-hmm. get it. 
I mean, but you have met a lot of people who say that, right? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of people say that. I don't yeah, know if it's, it's a thing that they common. do because they heard other people do it, and I think then it works they for them. and they just decide. But like, how though? Like, do they actually make money on it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I don't get it. I think well, Is I, it, it's because it just maybe like the news flow. I don't know. It just it forces them to track it more. It's like, for yeah. example, like Tesla. Mm-hmm. I follow Tesla a lot because yeah. it's entertaining, it's fun, whatever right. you know. Mm-hmm. I would never own it. Okay. I would never short it though. Right. So that's not saying anything. Mm-hmm. But I still enjoy following the company. I've yeah. read their annual reports. I follow Elon Musk. I follow all the commentary on on Twitter. I read what Jim Chanos and mm-hmm. Einhorn and all those guys say about it. And I also read what other people that are bullish on it say about yeah. it. You know. Speaking of the CEO too, when right. you were just saying how if the CEO left the business, what right. if the CEO left Tesla? If you liked Tesla, does that change the bull case? <laughs> yeah, probably right. Because yeah, and, and Mark Cuban was on uh, CNBC and he was they were talking about you know the whole Tesla shenanigans mm-hmm. and they, he was even saying when you're buying Tesla, you're buying the entrepreneur too. Yeah, you know, and you're buying a certain story. I think of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's part of it, you know. We're going to get uh, in trouble for talking about Tesla. Okay. No, 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 but I think that you are. I, I think I mentioned WeWork. We can talk about WeWork. That's yeah. less controversial than Tesla. Um, Did you read the thing I tweeted about what Barron's wrote about them? No, I did not. No. It was, I don't even remember off the time I had, but they were talking. The CEO pretty much said we'd be profitable if we backed out, like, marketing oh, yeah, no, expense. No, no, it was, like, yeah. earnings before everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I just meant that there is a publicly traded company in uh, the UK, and I rented office space from them that is similar in many ways to WeWork. And I live in a place where WeWork has a couple offices, and uh, their competitor has a couple offices, I mean, that you can rent out. Um, So, you know, they're very comparable in terms of their locations there and stuff. Um, Do they attract different kinds of people? Yeah. But what do you mean by that? Like different sources, like, cause like of the more, income level or no, no, no. The one, the, the office that I was in attracts more, uh, salespeople and, um, uh, people who want to use the office to host people and stuff there. Um, whereas I think the, we work ones attract more, um, people who are doing it as opposed to working from home, more creative people, things like that. Like startup type stuff or, yeah. In fact, I think the space they took over used to be a, a uh, ad agency by me but I'm pretty sure hmm. or it's next to that. If not, it's in the same building, but I think that's common around the country. I would guess that a lot of WeWork's locations are in the kind of places that ad agencies rent space because they rent some pretty expensive office space, usually ad agencies. Um, but I just mean there are two, there are two businesses that you're valuing one, uh, incredibly highly, uh, versus me- the normal metrics that you have and one you're not. So, but that's the kind of thing that there's, little bits of that now that you can see with like things like Tesla and uh, WeWork and stuff like that, which reminds, or um, right now, marijuana, anything that's related to marijuana, right? Is that way. Uh, and, and there was that way with Bitcoin stuff previously, yeah. uh, which reminds me of the 1990s where things are just valued completely differently because they're in a certain category. Cause it's like a new technology or it's on the blockchain. Or, yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's the story. And that's all I meant about story with Tesla is uh, uh part of the story is about what the future will be about electric and things like that. Right. And that's part of the story. When we talk about NACO or something, there are people who don't want to hear about NACO at all because of their expectations about coal and what it'll be in the future. And yet some of the projections for things are that coal in the U S will decline over the next 30 years, only about the same amount that declined just the last five years. Now that may turn out to be true. And that's all the decline is over the next 30 years, or it may turn out to be completely wrong. And in the next five years, they'll have declined just as much as they did the five years before. And it'll be way faster than ever expected. I saw plenty of things 10, 20 years ago that projected stuff for oil in the U S that's completely different than what they're projecting now. Yeah. Cause they tend to project the trend of the last 10 years or so, sure. you know, into these long-term projections. But uh, yeah, I think that's, 
part of the story. And that's the sort of thing with, with NACO. You value it very, very lowly because it's involved in um, coal. coal, yeah. And it's involved in coal just for, just for um, electric, right? And there's been no increase in electricity consumption in the U.S. in the last 10 years. And I assume it might it might decrease a little. The projections are that it will rise again. Um, anyway, I guess it will if we have a lot of electric cars. So that is the one thing that would increase it a lot. Cool. And the, I guess getting back to when you were saying mm-hmm. how you equally weight, why did you make NACO a 50% position That's when you were managing in your personal right. account? In the, in the managed port, well, the, so and, we've talk, and we've talked about before how yeah. obviously you'll do stuff. It's easier to do it differently yourself than you would for other people, et cetera. Correct. But yeah. And so I would never do that for the managed accounts. So in managed accounts, we do like a 20% position, uh, something like that, 15 or 20% position 16, for yeah. a, a first stock. Yeah. Um, whereas for my personal portfolio, I would do more than that and had in the past. Yeah. 25 would be normal and 50 would be what I would do. Was that the biggest position you've ever taken? 50? Though? Yeah. Uh, you mean NACO or just 50? NACO in general. Yeah. Yeah. 50. Yeah. Uh, so in the last nine years or so, I think I did three or four times 50% what, position. Oh, wow. But what yeah. made you take a 50% position over? Cause you also had, uh, Frost and a couple or like a different company in there. Sure. Um, I don't want to give out your, your old portfolio. What it was? What yeah. my old portfolio was? Okay. I think we can. It, it mainly was BWX. It was BWX Technologies, Frost, and, and NACA were a significant part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a very good question. Um, was it because you just felt like you weren't going to lose anything on it, or it was so cheap? Yeah. I thought it was so cheap that even if they closed one of their biggest mines, it would still be making enough money to justify the situation. I also like the management. I mean, we own a bunch of stocks in the managed accounts, and I really like the management of only two of them. I don't dislike the management of the others. Yeah. I just mean I really like the management of two of them, and one of those two is NACO. Uh-huh. And a lot of people disagree with me on that. But I've listened to the earnings calls. I know a little bit about it. I've read a book about the company and stuff, and I actually think that um, for the business that they're in, which is not a good business, and by the way, has not been a good business for 80 years <laughs> yeah. i mean it's since the end of the 1920s it's been a bad business what they've been in they've progressively moved further and further out of that sure but i think that they've done a really good job of doing that i mean naco we didn't want to make a podcast about naco but naco in the last five years at a time when coal had the biggest drop that you've ever seen in terms of production of coal in the united states um that isn't just cyclical but is a you know regular reduction in in uh, it that's long term um they increase the amount of coal that they mined every year and they also do lime rock which is a much smaller part of their business yeah. calls easily five times or something the size probably by profit but that increased the amount of lime rock that they mined every year for the last five years now that doesn't sound like that big a deal you can look at lots of companies where you go oh they increased their volume every year for five straight years but they did this in the worst possible time for coal sure right yeah and just a lot of things about what they did i liked uh and what I think they'll do in the future. So I really was impressed by them in an industry that isn't good. But what Buffett said is true, which is that, you know, um, basically, if you have a great management uh, and you put them in charge of a company with terrible economics, uh, it's the terrible economics yeah. that went out. And that's Same absolutely tech. true. In the long run, if um, if fewer and fewer places in North Dakota and in other parts of the country, and North Dakota is only part of their business, um, stop burning coal for electric power plants, then um, the business will not succeed. Yeah. Uh, what I thought was interesting, I believe I asked you before, when we originally started looking at the stock mm-hmm. pre-spin, so yeah. whatever that was a year and a half ago, um, I asked you what would made you s- make you sell the company. Do, oh, you remember, yeah. do you remember what you told me? Yeah, if they buy a Because it really didn't have anything to deal money. with, I guess, macro type thing no, or anything. That's yeah. it. Because they had one a few years ago. Yeah. And at the time, it looked like a great, 
it's the kind of decision that I like. Now, it's an industry that I wouldn't want to get into. So they bought a different grade of coal, a better grade of coal, right? And so uh, they're in, they, they mine the very worst kind of coal, and they do it right at the, the site um, that will be burning the coal. So um, And it's very dirty coal, uh, very low energy content. But what they bought into was something that looked like a really attractive bargain purchase. And then they ended up losing a lot of money on it because yeah. the market price of coal mattered in that case. And it completely uh, cratered. Yeah, it's recovered since then, the price of coal, mm-hmm. but now their business has nothing to do with coal. But yeah, no, I would still, that's absolutely true. I would sell it if they did that. I don't think they will, but I could be wrong. Um, so what I'm saying is if they, so for instance, like a metallurgical coal is something they could buy or a coal that um, is used for thermal coal, but is a different, but is exposed to market price. So what they do now is they have uh, agreements in place so that they, um, the, the price of coal doesn't matter to them. Their customer takes it at a certain price, which is basically their cost plus a little profit for every ton. So um, absolutely, if they in, invested in buying a consolidated coal mine that they own themselves and then sold in the market, as most coal companies do, uh, then I would sell the stock instantly. And that was true even when I bought 50% of the company. Yeah. If it, not 50% of the company, but I bought 50% <laughs> of my portfolio. Rich boy. It. it would go from 50% yeah. to zero yeah. immediately if that's what I saw them do. Yeah, and I remember when I asked you that question, pre-spin that's exactly what you said yeah no the no question if they do that i would sell it yeah and I, that's still true we ha- we own it and so uh, that's a good buy or good sell decisions versus uh, bad sell decisions right there a good sell decision there you yeah. go okay i mean the good i would i've done that many times i guess is yeah. it like when i've sold a stock the biggest reason is that i don't like their capital allocation that they've done something could it be because people. management they just take a different role in it yeah in, if they the, in the capital the ri- allocation if they increase the risk in the business yeah i mean people wonder about like ba- the other half of babcock and wilcox um was uh bw enterprises and it was involved in coal related business yeah but what i, I wasn't bothered by that i would have kept owning the stock if they just stuck with uh maintenance on coal power plants in the u.s but what they did is they diversified into things like waste energy and the rest of the world and stuff. So going more into the green stuff and newer stuff and internationally and things like that. And a bunch of different things that are different from what they were doing before. And that really worried me and I sold it. And they ended up to have disastrous results. And now they might have had great results, but they're an engineering company and they were taking risks that they had never taken before. So that worried me and I sold it. That's basically what happened with Barnes & Noble. As long as they were staying in a declining when book they went business – I understood what they were yeah, doing. Yeah. And so it could decline every year and I could still value it. Yeah. But once they went into Nook in a big way, when I saw how big they were going to go into it and how much money they lost and they were still going to do it, then I wanted out because that was a completely different business. Yeah. So as long as they stay in the core business. Sure. Yeah. Um, then I, I'm comfortable because when I first analyzed the stock, I liked that core business. Yeah, like absolutely. I liked Barnes and Noble's position in book selling. Now the story's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Because of what they did. So yeah, that's true. And that would be true for a lot of companies. Like if they merge into something else. I mean, even when I mentioned Majestic Wine, I was interested into it up to the point where they decided that they were going to have an online wine business uh, merge into them and the CEO of that business take over. So now they're going to make this big push online and everything. That's and then I didn't want to be part of it anymore. Yeah. This is based on capital allocation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And strategy. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's, it's well, competitive I mean, it strategy. Sense, yeah. It's moving into someplace where I don't know that they have You're a not competitive position. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing about NACO that we talked about, NACO does not face competition in its normal business, right? Once it gets that contract for that place that it's going to operate a coal mine, near the customer's site, like right at the customer's uh, site for consuming this coal, then they're going to be there as long as the customer is there. Sure, yeah. That's very different than trying to ship coal by rail to different customers in all yeah. parts of the country mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere, yeah. 
it's when the story changes. It's like um, when we were driving here in the car together and we were talking about mm-hmm. the casino business. Right. And I said, do you think a casino business or casinos are good businesses? Yeah. And you said they're good businesses if they don't have other casinos around them. Yeah, they're good businesses. Right. The point where so it's like if, a casino near them. Yeah. it's like if you own a casino and then somebody else put a casino within 100 miles or whatever from yeah. it. Yeah. We sure. talked about Atlantic City there on that car, right? Which is, I'm from New Jersey originally, and people always ask about that and why things happen in Lansing and stuff. And it's a very simple story, actually. The simple story is it used to be a monopoly on gambling on yeah. the East Coast, and uh, it isn't anymore. And But that's not unusual. Any business where it goes from having a few of these in the area yeah. to 10 times more sure. becomes a bad business. Well, I mean, that's nature of capitalism, right? Yeah. When a company does exceptionally well, of course, there's going to come more businesses there. Yeah. I mean, if you're operating a restaurant on the corner that's doing great, you don't want to see five more restaurants <laughs> yeah. open on the same street. Yeah. That, that's bad. Sure. Uh, it's very hard to survive in that kind of environment. So you all, that's why we talk about moats. You always want something where that's not going to happen. And I did that. We did it a, a long time ago. I did an initial interest post about U.S. Um, lime which does um, lime uh, quarries in the U.S. And um, what I said is the most important thing, I thought the most important thing of anything in the whole write-up, is I said, my guess is that there will be as few or fewer uh, lime quarries operated in the U.S. in five years, 10 years, and 15 years. And that's a huge deal because normally most businesses I look at I'm not sure, or if it's an attractive industry, I think there'll be more competitors, more sites open 5, 10, 15 years from now. When you find one where there'll be fewer competitors in a decade, then that's something to really seriously look at. Anything where there's going to be competition declining over time is something that's a really interesting business. How did you come up with that hypothesis? Were you just Uh, looking at past trends? Past trends, especially. And they've been declining? Yeah, but also sort of legal and environmental things and stuff like that. What you generally do in that industry now, for a long time, they've been doing is you increase the capex that you have on certain uh, sites and then you close it on other ones. Actually, we talked about coal. And the truth is with coal power plants, the same thing happen- has happened recently. Where in the last five years or something, it's not just that coal generally, like each plant is producing less. It's that all the marginal plants shut down. So there's a lot of capex that had to go into meeting environmental regulations and things like that or expected environmental regulations. And um, so your biggest plants that you think can continue to to uh, produce for a long time, you put a lot of capex into. But the ones where you didn't think that was the case, the owners did not want to put up money now for all the equipment and stuff that they need to put in. So they would close them down. And so it would become more and more concentrated in the bigger plants. And that's what happens with lime stuff, is that they put more and more money into better equipment. A lot of them have better equipment, more investment um, in each location, and just fewer sites. Yeah. Because of permitting and stuff like that, it's really hard yeah. to get permits and things that you would need for a new site. Cool. That's, that, was, <laughs> that was a great discussion. Well, uh, do you have anything else to add for today's podcast? Uh, no, that's it. I mentioned uh, the memo, yeah. Cocaine Brain, so you can read <laughs> you can read that memo. You can, no, no, but you can read, uh, um, you can sign up for future memos. Yes. Members of Focus Compounding can read all the memos. You can go to a page on Focus Compounding that you can read all the past memos. But if you just want to sign up for free for future mem- memos, you can do that by going to focuscompounding.com and typing your email in. That is correct. And yeah. we are very excited because we have two special guests. Actually, okay. we have two special guests for the next two weeks. Okay. And then the following two weeks, I think we have more people coming out as well. So right. that is part of the agenda for the podcast going forward is bringing on other investors and have a nice conversation. We really had a lot of fun with Samir. 
mm-hmm. when we uh, had chatted with him. Yep. Uh, if you do want to help Jeff and I out, of course, like we said, helps keep the lights on, okay. right? <laughs> Please feel free to go to pod- the podcast app and give us a rating and review. That will help us out. And as well, if you want to follow us on Twitter, follow at, at Focused Compound. Other than that, thank you very much. We will see you in the next podcast. We're very excited for it. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.